Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. And, by the way, Happy New Year. As always, I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and we are ringing in 2018 with a four-part podcast series that investigates spirits, cocktails, and cocktail cultures from around the world. Why, you might ask? Well, even though the cocktail is an American invention, it's got roots and branches that spread across time and space to almost every culture imaginable. Just like America is a nation of immigrants, cocktails draw their flavors from places that most of us today here in the U.S. would term exotic. This series is also a celebration of the brand spanking new Embitterment Heritage Collection, which is a premium line of cocktail bitters we're launching this month in January of 2018, starting off the new year right. Each of these four episodes will be inspired by one of the four excellent bitters flavors in the Heritage Collection, and we'll do a deep dive into that region's history, culture, and recipes to help inspire your home cocktail experiments in the new year. So if it's your resolution to learn a little bit more and be more creative behind the bar, we got you covered. Before we jump into this week's Stop on the World Cocktail Tour, I want to just real quick introduce you to the entire Heritage Collection and kind of talk through what it's designed to do and and why these flavors are cool. And we started developing them early last year, and we knew that it was going to take a lot of time, a lot of research, and a ton of different test batches to make sure that we here at Modern Bar Cart can do justice to the cultural flavor palettes we selected. Because instead of just looking around for seasonal flavors or weird novelty blends, we decided to look beyond our own shores, in some cases, for entire cuisines and cultures that inspire us. We got together, we dumped out our spice racks, poured through a bunch of old cookbooks and cocktail recipes, and ended up with a set of ingredients and flavor combos that have thoroughly seduced us. So, without further ado, here's your first look at the Embitterment Heritage Collection. Leading off with today's episode, we've got our Liquid Gold Ancient Trade Bitters. Strange name, I know. And these are a celebration of the spice trade powered by the people and flavors of the Indian subcontinent from ancient times right up through the present day. More on these in just a minute. Then we've got our Frontier Sarsaparilla Bitters, which are a nod to the flavors of the North American frontier. And most people don't really think of North America as having too many unique herbs or spices that we regularly cook with or consume, but that's not true. In these bitters, we let juniper, sarsaparilla root, lemon balm, hyssop, and blueberries, just to name a few of the ingredients, work together to reveal the true and flavorful character of the frontier. Next up, we've got our Typhoon Tiki Bitters, which are a fusion of flavors from two important cocktail regions, the Caribbean and the South Pacific. 
Tiki culture is pretty much a hodgepodge of ingredients from all around the world. And so are the ingredients that power these bitters. From Thailand and the South Pacific, we've got ingredients like kefir lime leaf, galangal root, coconut, and hibiscus. And then from the Caribbean, we draw on allspice, bitter orange peel, and fresh lime peel. And that fusion just creates this really beautiful kind of spirit of what tiki tastes like. And then finally, we've got perhaps the most intriguing member of the Heritage Collection, Iki Japanese bitters, which are focused on the umami-driven flavors of Japan, kind of salty, savory things. We use fresh wasabi grown here in the U.S., as well as seaweed, Japanese green tea, toasted sesame seeds, ginger, and shiitake mushrooms to make this unforgettable concoction. Of course, in each episode, we'll give you some awesome ideas for how to use these bitters. And special for you, our podcast listeners, to celebrate the launch of the Heritage Collection and to thank you for hanging out with us every week, we're going to give you 15% off any order from modernbarcart.com through January 31st if you enter the code World Heritage, all one word at checkout. That's any order through January 31st, 15% off. The code is World Heritage, all one word. That discount being conveyed, let's jump into today's episode about the cocktail culture and flavors of India. The story of India is the story of fertility. Roughly 10 million years ago, India was just a big old island moving slowly toward the Eurasian landmass at a rate of really only a couple centimeters per year. Then, geologically speaking, the island slammed into the rest of the continent, and the mountain chain we know today as the Himalayas began to form. Again, this is taking place hyper slowly. This is geologic time, not anything that humans can even really wrap our head around. And what does all this geologic activity have to do with fertility, you may ask? Well, it turns out quite a bit. As the Himalayas grew in size during the millennia before humans migrated out of Africa and began to populate Asia, the mountains began to play two central roles that influence the climate and fertility of India to this day. First, they formed a barrier between India and the colder air that sweeps down from the Siberian region during the winter months. This keeps India insulated from extremes of hot and cold. Second, during the summer when tropical air masses creep northward, the Himalayas then repel these air masses and rapidly cool them in the process, which results in great quantities of rainfall for the entire subcontinent. I'm sure a geologist or a meteorologist could tell that story much better than I just did, but the result is a dazzlingly fertile land with a predictable weather pattern. In other words, a perfect place for agriculture. So as civilizations developed, India became a major breadbasket, and there was a lot of interest in trade as cities and road networks began to flourish. 
India doesn't traditionally get a whole lot of credit for being early to the urbanization game, but archaeologists in the 20th century made huge discoveries revealing that thriving cities existed in India at the same time as other Western civilizations were also settling in large numbers. And this, of course, is all thanks to that agriculture. And what became the driving force behind many Indian cities as rumor of their spice wealth reached curious palates in the Middle East and the Mediterranean world? Obviously, trade. Even before the height of the Roman Empire, technology and precious metals flowed eastward toward India while the flavorful bounties of the subcontinent traveled west in caravans, as well as on boats sailed by captains who knew how to use the changing winds of the monsoon to speed their voyages between the shores of India and the numerous port cities that dotted the Horn of Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, and the Persian Gulf. Here's a clip from Jonathan Fasano of Don Ciccio e Fili, an American Amaro producer, explaining how the ancient spice trade impacted some of the world's most beloved cocktail ingredients. Traditionally, Amarian come from Italy, but that really goes back to the fact that they were established first because of the spice trade. Uh, the Byzantine Empire Romans would seize many of the herbs and spices coming from the south of India as they hit the port in Alexandria, Egypt. And so they were the first to really have their hands on the herbs and spices that would then be distributed to the rest of Europe through mostly Venice and Genoa. Um, and so if you think about the Roman Empire, you know, getting their hands on these first, Italians were the first to really take them and explore with them, originally throwing them into their wine. And then as they become more developed, you know, throwing them into different distilled types of spirits. When I think about the spice trade, what impresses me most is the sheer scale and human toil necessary to transport a single peppercorn from a province in South India to the table of a wealthy Roman noble, for example. I mean, just think of all the logistics that requires. There's the seed that is planted, the rain and sun and soil that help the seed grow into a pepper plant that produces other seeds, which are then hand-harvested, dried, sorted, packed, placed on a cart, and this cart is then brought to the docks or the bazaar loaded onto a camel or a boat, transported hundreds or thousands of miles during an age when transport overland or sea was incredibly dangerous, then passed off to any number of middlemen who repeated their own similar versions of that very same journey until finally the slave of this Roman patrician purchases a handful of peppercorns at the market, grinds them by hand, and uses just a few precious pinches to season a stew cooked over an open fire on a hearth so far away from the source of that lowly peppercorn that it might as well be on another planet. That is what blows my mind. Today, of course, we've got everything mechanized in the spice trade, from planting to harvest to shipping and processing, but what we're celebrating with the liquid gold ancient trade bidders in the Embitterment Heritage Collection is the journey and human determination that made the spread of flavor and ideas possible in the first place. When you taste these bitters, we want you to be transported just like the spices were across thousands of miles of deserts and oceans and mountain ranges to a place where you are inspired by exotic sights, sounds, and flavors. That's the kind of transport that flavor can accomplish. And with that, I think we should probably at this point talk about one of the best ways to try our liquid gold bitters in a cocktail when you get your bottle in the mail or from your favorite local retailer. And this is 
the humble gin and tonic. Now, there's a couple of things that make the trusty G&T a great pairing for these bitters in particular. First, it's probably the best vehicle for a really dry gin, which on its own or in a boozier cocktail can be a little bit bracing. Here, I'm thinking a gin like Tanqueray, Beefeater, maybe Gordon's. And secondly, that squeeze of fresh lime juice that accompanies a gin and tonic is an absolutely perfect way to balance the rich, mysterious flavor of these bitters with the austere, kind of cool nature of the gin and tonic water. When I make my liquid gold G&T, I add the ice and my gin to the Collins glass and toss in my squeeze of lime. Then I'll add one, maybe one and a half eyedroppers full of the liquid gold bitters because you got to remember this is a highball cocktail. And then I give everything a good stir and I top top it off with the tonic water of choice. I think this is one of the best blank slates to use when you first start out experimenting with these bitters and it doesn't hurt that the color of the drink becomes a beautiful yellow that you don't really see very often in the world of the gin and tonic. So nice little visual stimulus as well. So now that you've got one cocktail idea, let's turn our attention back to India and investigate the role that this culture played and continues to play in cocktails and cocktail culture. And starting off, there are two things I want you to keep in mind as we dive in. Number one, a historical theme that you see played out again and again in Indian history is that the folks who are in charge within a given dynasty or regime, we'll call these the ruling military elite, are almost always from out of town, whether that's the Central Asian steppes to the north, Persia to the west, or Imperial Britain from literally the other side of the world. And then the second thing I want you to keep in mind is that even though the cocktail is truly an American invention, India has a lot to do with the invention of perhaps the most important cocktail ancestor, punch. According to David Wondrich, who wrote the definitive text on punch, quote, In the age of chaos, long before the creation of the cocktail, spiritus and aqueous, thick and thin, sweet and sharp and unctuous, were all tumbled together in one undifferentiated mass, without form or order. Then, from the east, there rose a sun to dry the wet and distill the light from the heavy. And then all drinks began to know their proper kinds and submit the willfulness of their doing to the correction of just reason. That sun had a name, and that name was Punch. End quote. And that's the invocation of the entire book itself. Many believe that punch is actually a loan word from the Sanskrit panch, probably butchered that, meaning five, which indicates the number of ingredients in the beverage. Any punch contains these five things, spirits, sugar, citrus, water, and spice or tea. It's a super flexible beverage in that it can be served hot or cold, made with various spirits, various sugars, various citrus, various spices, and really adapted to the cultural palate of wherever it's being served and whomever is consuming it. But the cultural and logistical realities that allowed for the discovery and adoption of punch by the British and then made it possible for this beverage to spread across the globe are fascinating in and of themselves. 
down through the ages, the Indian people, by and large, are a peace-loving bunch. And their popular religions either discourage alcohol, in the case of Hinduism and Buddhism, or they outright ban its consumption altogether, in the case of Islam. But if you remember those warlike military ruling classes from out of town I mentioned a minute ago, they either tended not to share the popular religious discouragement of alcohol because they were a different religion, they were from somewhere else, that had different beliefs, or they simply felt like they were above the rules because that's just how sovereign rulers tend to operate sometimes. In the case of the Christian British colonial powers later on who arrived in India in the early 17th century, alcohol you know, wasn't an issue at all for them. It played and obviously continues to play a large role in British culture. Add to this fact that in the early 1600s, when the British East India Company, maybe familiar from those history classes you took a while back, when this company started sending a ton of people to colonize India, English ships started carrying large quantities of spirits rather than beer and wine to avoid spoilage during this voyage, which tended to be much longer and much warmer than other voyages that colonial England undertook prior to setting up shop in India. Now, this isn't to say that India didn't already have spirits. The typical variety is called Arak, A-R-R-A-C-K. And this is a generic term for pretty much any spirit that is distilled in Asia. And the important thing to remember about Arak is that it's a generic term. So when you say it, you're saying something closer to liquor or spirits. It's a general noun, not something more specific like gin or whiskey. And this kind of generalizability undoubtedly played into how flexible and adaptable punch became as a discipline, if it can even be called that. What other factors led to the rise of punch? Well, it helps that Indians had been cultivating various citrus fruits for a long time. The lime is believed to have been developed there. And in addition, many of the southern provinces of the subcontinent were prolific growers of tea, which is one of the reasons why the English were kind of in the neighborhood. They were interested in the tea. They, they like it. So we've got our booze, foreign and domestic. We've got our citrus, spice, and tea. And we have also have a lot more sugar being produced and shipped across the world due to the advent of the sugar industry in the West Indies and elsewhere. So now that we've got all the ingredients, all really that's left is the need for an occasion to drink. David Wondrich describes this occasion, looking at things from the perspective of the early factors, which is what agents of the British East India Company were called, and considering life on their factories. He says, quote, Consider for a moment the factor's life. 13,000 miles and six months at sea from home, pent up in a claustrophobic little compound, few were allowed to live outside of the factory, perched on the rim of an alien land whose people, languages, and way of life were utterly foreign to anything in your experience, with little to occupy your time for weeks on end but waiting for ships to come in and trying not to think about the disease and death that were claiming all too many of your comrades. End quote. No wonder these dudes wanted to get a little drunk. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So we've got boredom, loneliness, feeling out of place, 
you know, the feelings that drive us to drink to this day. But another occasion for hitting the old punch bowl back in the early 1600s was, oddly enough, nutritional. Ever since it was discovered that the consumption of citrus was helpful in warding off various illnesses that sailors were prone to, such as scurvy, people had been tinkering with the best way to take their vitamins. So, as these British East India ships traveled up and down the coast of India, you can imagine that punch became a popular way to make taking said vitamins a bit more enjoyable, right? You get your citrus, you get everything kind of in balance, you get a little bit of a spice, and maybe the spices contain some things that they weren't used to getting in their diets, and then you've got, of course, the alcohol buzz. I can't see a downside there. And in this way, you might even call Punch the great-great-granddaddy of today's gummy vitamins. As the decades and eventually centuries clicked by and the power of the British Empire waxed and waned, Indians themselves had less and less to do with dictating libationary trends. They pretty much came up with punch. At some point, we assume the British learned it from them, since it was a Sanskrit word that described it. And then the British kind of like took it off to other parts of the world. And then, of course, cocktails were invented in the U.S. in the 1800s. And from there, Indian-run bars and hotels in various expat-controlled neighborhoods simply attempted to keep pace with trends from abroad. One thing Indians did manage to successfully export to the rest of the world, however, is their cuisine. And this is where the rubber of the ancient spice trade meets the road of the cocktail renaissance, so to speak. Even as a kid growing up in the 1990s, I didn't know really what Indian food was. That just wasn't a thing in my universe until I started traveling, attending college, and then, you know, more and better cookbooks and television shows started featuring flavors from India in front of a mainstream American audience. This also coincided with the rise of craft cocktails. And now I can go online and pull up the cocktail menu from Rasika, which is a popular Indian restaurant here in D.C., and kind of trace how their original drinks that they put on their menu celebrate the entire spectrum of flavors, from British spirits to Indian fruit juices and spices to an abundance of vegetable and herbal components. And let's just take two examples right off their menu to get a sense of what I'm talking about here. We've got one that's called the Kamine. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And this is Pim's Liqueur, which is super British, mixed with chili gin. Chili gin. We've got a British spirit that's infused with a very Indian ingredient. We've got lime juice. We've got ginger syrup and cucumber. So not only does this sound like a super well-balanced drink, but you've got a really strong representation of both British flavors and ingredients and Indian flavors. And then... Another one, this is maybe a little bit more off the wall, a little bit more international. This is called the Preti. Tequila, Blanco tequila, excuse me, infused with tamarind. Now, tamarind is a Southeast Asian flavor that not too many of us are familiar with here. It's a kind of, it's, it's hard to describe. It's a bit of a jammy tasting fruit that's often um, created and turned into a paste. And then we've got also in this cocktail, Coquiroso, which is an aromatized aperitif somewhere between wine and 
or excuse me, somewhere between a vermouth and a liqueur. Then we've got jaggery. Now, jaggery is something that most people have no clue what it is. And it's actually perhaps the oldest form of sugar. It's this kind of dark, hard clump of sugar. And you kind of have to almost chisel off a bit and dissolve it in something in order to start working with it in a cocktail form. But this is exactly what the sailors of the British East India Company would have had access to back when punch was invented. So we've got Blanco tequila infused with tamarind, Cookie Rosso, which is a very, you know, continental cocktail ingredient, Jaggery, which is historical. Then we've got egg white and lime juice and bitters, which turns all of these kind of crazy ingredients into a basic sour with the egg white producing that nice foam on top and the lime juice doing its work to balance out the drink. So you've got in these two cocktails that I just described, a perfect example of the internationalism and the kind of spread and conversation of flavors from different cultures and different parts of the world that really characterizes the value of India. And if I don't, you know, if these two cocktails don't represent the peak mingling of cultural and mixological flavors and ideas, I don't know what does. I mean, ultimately, I'd love to be able to tell you, here are the cocktails that India gave to the world, and here's how to make them. I think that would make for a nice, clean podcast episode, and you'd have your homework for the week. But that's not going to happen. It's, it's not how history happened. I think the most accurate way to look at everything we've just covered is to kind of take a step back and understand that the rest of the world has been benefiting from and in some cases, even exploiting India's fertility for millennia. And just like India produced the spices that are responsible for dozens of cuisines besides their own, it also gave rise to punch. And without that lovely brew, the cocktail probably would have never been invented. So, although we don't ever send gratitude to India when we taste really good Italian food, and we don't ever credit them with setting the stage for the cocktail, at the very least, the flavors of the subcontinent are now becoming mainstream behind the bar. And that is very, very fortunate indeed. I'll leave you here with one more cocktail idea to help you start experimenting with the liquid gold ancient trade bitters by embitterment. And I call it, quite simply, the Mumbai Manhattan. And it's basically just a modified dry Manhattan made using bourbon. Very simple. To make it, all you need is two ounces of bourbon, three quarters of an ounce to an ounce of dry vermouth, depending on your taste, and one eyedropper full of liquid gold ancient trade bitters. And I should mention that unlike the organics line, these premium flavors have a little eyedropper that kind of screws into the bottle. You're probably familiar with it if you've seen other bitters out there. And so instead of dashing, you're going to be measuring using the eyedropper. So don't think that you're going to have to go and put your hands on an eyedropper to measure these cocktails that I'm describing. It comes right in the bottle. And what you do is you combine your bourbon, your dry vermouth, and your liquid gold ancient trade bitters in a mixing glass with ice. You stir it for 20 to 30 seconds, and then you strain it into a coupe glass and garnish with an orange twist. Now, bonus points, if you want to get real fancy, you can flame that orange peel 
which gives it a bit deeper, a bit kind of smokier of a flavor profile. I personally really like it. I think it works great with this drink. But as always, please be careful when you use fire around your cocktails. Alcohol is flammable, and we here at Modern Bar Cart aren't responsible for you burning down your bar. So if it sounds tricky, please do leave it to the pros. The nice thing about this cocktail, the flavor profile that I'll just describe before we sign off here, is that the fenugreek and the turmeric in the ancient trade bitters blend really well with the kind of mapley characteristic of bourbons. Bourbons tend to have that nuttier, sweeter flavor profile. And so those two flavors, the turmeric and the fenugreek, kind of meld in with it. They kind of like, you know, get a little buddy-buddy with the bourbon. And then the other flavors, the pepper, the Himalayan sea salt, just like in the same way that salted caramel, the salt in the caramel enhances the experience of the sweetness, the Himalayan sea salt in these bitters is actually going to provide that counterpoint to the sweetness and kind of lift it out. And that is why I also used dry vermouth in this cocktail because unlike sweet vermouth, dry vermouth has a little bit more acidity and that is going to, again, pull in the opposite direction of the fenugreek, the turmeric, and the bourbon and it's going to provide a nice tension that allows you, as the cocktail flows over your tongue, to have a very full-bodied flavor experience as you drink it. And I think that's what makes a good drink. you got to have things that are moving in different directions or kind of having a conversation with each other. So please do try out the Mumbai Manhattan. Take a pic, send it to us at Modern Bar Cart on Facebook and Instagram, and we will applaud your creativity and hopefully you can give us some tasting notes as well maybe you found a variation that works for you maybe you've got a really awesome dry vermouth that you like to use these are all things we want to hear we're very active on social and we always love hearing feedback from listeners that's it for this week's episode but please do check out these sexy new cocktail bitters we just launched and definitely head over to modernbarcart.com and use the promo code worldheritage all one word to get a sweet discount on your next order new year new outro comments so listen up if you liked this episode spread the word Tell us, tell your friends, tell your dad it's time he tried a new cocktail. Ask your mom where she put your granddad's cocktail shaker. Start having conversations about cocktails. You can join in our conversation by tagging or mentioning us on Facebook or Instagram at Modern Barcart, or feel free to type a long flowing email for me to read and send it along to podcast at modernbarcart.com. We're real people and we actually respond to your comments and your emails. Also, if you want to go ahead and break the fifth wall and actually become a part of the Modern Bar Cart podcast by allowing me to interview you, that email I just mentioned is also where you can go and introduce yourself. Keep an eye out for new products as we continue to build out our awesome line of cocktail mixers, accessories, and gear. And until next time, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.